You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Bruce George Peter Lee. Tuesday the 4th of December, 1979, the emergency services were called to the scene of a fire at 12 Selby Street in Hull, northern England. The house was occupied by the Hasty family. Edith and Tommy Hasty were the parents. Tommy Hasty was a petty criminal, but a pleasant one, according to the police. At the time of the fire, he was serving a 12-month sentence for robbing a local sports club not a hundred yards away from his home. They had seven kids, three girls and four boys. The night before, the girls had all been staying with friends or relatives, so on the morning of the 4th, it was just the boys and Mrs. Hasty. All the family present that night were upstairs in two of the house's bedrooms. Edith, 34 at the time, was in the back bedroom with her son Thomas, who was nine. He suffered from muscular dystrophy, and Edith cared for him as he could barely walk. Charlie, 15, was on the top bunk in the front bedroom, and Paul, 12, and Peter, 8, were sharing the bottom bunk. The boys were joined in the front room by their dog, a German Shepherd crossbreed named Rinny. The house had been gutted by the time the police arrived. There was a smell of paraffin oil in the air, and it was pretty clear to everyone that someone had poured it through the letterbox in the front door before setting it alight. The fire itself would have taken care of any forensic evidence. Just in front of the door was a little trail of the oil, ending in a puddle where the canister holding it had been sat at one point, but the can was nowhere to be found. All five members of the Hasty family who were present in the house were taken to hospital, Three of the boys were rushed to a specialist burn unit, given the severity of their injuries, and they were not expected to survive. A specialist forensic scientist was called to examine the scene. The night before the fire, Edith and her four sons had sat in her bed together, chatting, before the three went off to their own room. She had sat up reading a book until Thomas had fallen asleep, and then she too drifted off. When she was visited by the police in her hospital bed, Edith Hasty told them about how she had awoken that night and sat bolt upright. She knew something was wrong, but in her half-sleeping state, she didn't know what it was. She got up and made her way to the landing, and when she put her hand on the wooden banister of the stairs, it scalded her. The hall below her was ablaze. She immediately went about trying to wake up her boys and get them out of the house. When she got Charles out of bed, he managed to open the bedroom window and push it out. But he also pushed out his mother. She fell 15 feet to the ground, to safety. But the open window caused a rush of air into the house, fueling the fire further and making it impossible for the boys to get out. A neighbour heard Edith screaming and rang 999. 
the fire brigade were on the scene quickly and soon had the fire under control. They then went about trying to save the boys. Thomas had still been in his bed when the firemen found him, and they carried him out. They were quickly followed by other men carrying the three other boys. Charlie had been found unconscious, lying next to Peter and Paul. Edith had suffered burns to her hands, arms, and face, as well as a broken ankle from the fall from the window. Charlie had burns over 80% of his body. Paul had 70% severe burning, and Peter 85%, also with very deep burns. The two younger boys were very seriously injured indeed, so serious that they were sent from the hospital in Hull to a specialist burn unit in Wakefield. Thomas had suffered burns as well, but thankfully they were not that severe. An arson expert was dispatched from the Home Office Forensic Science Laboratory, and he concluded that more than three pints of paraffin had been poured through the letterbox, soaking the carpet beneath. Then a lit newspaper, the sun apparently, was pushed in afterwards, causing the huge house fire. Edith and Tommy Hasty had married when they were both sixteen, and had quickly begun their family. They were both from working-class backgrounds. Tommy worked on ships, but was often committing petty crimes for which he spent a lot of time in prison. He said himself he wasn't a very good thief at all. The two loved each other very much, and Tommy was very much a lovable rogue type. The family eventually moved to the house on Selby Street to accommodate their growing numbers. It was a relatively new-build development of 17 council houses, and was surrounded by the dilapidated Victorian homes, and was surrounded by dilapidated Victorian homes, mainly divided into bedsits. Nearby was the main road into Hull, and the train tracks. Near to Selby Street in an old Victorian building that was once a police station, but was by that time used only for storage, an incident room was set up. In the early stages, the investigation was still for arson, but the information that the police had at the time indicated to them that at least two of the boys were unlikely to recover from their injuries. The police thought that, in all likelihood, there would be a murder investigation on their hands. Given that there was no apparent motive and no real evidence left at the scene, the investigation had to start from scratch. It would be a boots-on-the-ground operation and house-to-house inquiries, as well as identifying anyone who was in the vicinity of Selby Street the night of the fire were carried out. The police were either looking for their suspect or for someone who might be able to identify the arsonist. The lead investigator gave what precious little information he had to the local newspaper, along with a public call for people with information that might be helpful to their inquiries to come forward. On December the 5th, Charlie succumbed to his injuries, injuries that he had sustained in a vain attempt to save his brothers. Tommy Hasty was granted compassionate leave from prison, and went to his wife's side in hospital, awaiting news of their other two gravely ill sons. That day, after news of Charlie's death was broadcast on the local radio, a man was seen standing on the railway line that overlooked Selby Street, and muttering to himself, one down, four to go. But the police investigation was not able to track that man down. 
However, they had had a response from the public after their appeal for information. Unfortunately, most of the calls received were complaining about the behaviour of the Hasty Boys, rather than providing information about the attack on them. It quickly became clear that the Hasties and their sons had been a source of local rancour for many years. People had not been happy with their activities one bit. That said, the whole street didn't seem to get along, and irritated letters had shot back and forth across the street for a number of years. The Hasty Boys were much disliked. They were accused by their neighbours of burgling, pissing through letterboxes, smashing fences, and climbing onto roofs and throwing bricks down chimneys of all things. On the 7th of December, Peter Hasty died of his burns. Paul remained critical, whereas Edith and Thomas were thankfully stable by that time. Tommy continued to visit his wife and sons in their hospital beds. But the investigation had turned up very few leads. The neighbourhood was generally quiet at night. The night of the fire, a police car had driven past the house, but the officer had seen nothing. Even if the arsonist was at the house at the time, number 12 was set back from the road, and it would have been easy for the culprit to duck down out of sight. A couple had also walked up the road that night, just before the fire, but they had seen nothing. Meanwhile, rumours flew around the street that Edith had herself started the fire, with paraffin from a heater the family used. This was discounted by the investigators. Paul passed away on the 14th of December. It was about that time that Edith remembered something. The police had gathered all the statements from the neighbours, and they were asking her if there was anyone in particular that she could think of that might be responsible. If there had been any previous incidents or threats. She said she could think of nothing, but then remembered that she had gotten a poison pen letter in the post the Christmas before. It was a threat scrawled on a square of cardboard, cut from a cornflakes box, and she had left it in a drawer in the living room. The living room, which had mainly suffered only smoke damage. The entire property at Selby Road was searched yet again, and the rectangle of card was found. In printed letters it read, quote, A family of fucking rubbish. We all hate you. You should all live on an island, Devil's Island but I'm not kidding. I promised you a bomb and by hell, I'm not kidding. Why don't you flit while you've got the chance? We can't get you out normally, then we'll bastard well bomb you, and that's too good for you. End quote. Edith and Tommy confirmed that there had never been any other threats to quote-unquote bomb them, nor were they aware of any plan to try and oust them from their house by other means. But the police now had some sort of lead to follow. Someone had made threats, and they had that person's handwriting. So the task force was put to work checking the postcard against the statements that they had from the neighbours. That was all they had to go on at that point. By Christmas Eve, Edith had checked herself out of the hospital, and the family had been rehoused four and a half miles away in the Orchard Park housing estate. But Tommy and Edith were angry at their neighbours. That evening, they returned to Selby Street with the intention of knocking on doors to see if they could tell who was involved by looking at them, by talking to them directly. They wanted to see who looked guilty. 
but they ended up shouting and roaring and damaging property, breaking windows, that is, before they got very far. The police were called, and the overwhelmed, grief-stricken, and angry couple were picked up and arrested. They were released on police bail, but failed to appear at the magistrate's court on the 27th. They hadn't run off, though. They were just at home, dealing with their grief and tragedy. They were eventually granted bail until after their son's funerals, on the conditions that they did not return to Selby Street in the meantime. There was an exception even to that, though. They were allowed to go to the Methodist Church on the street on the 4th of January for the funerals of their three boys. Tommy and Edith were adamant that they would bring the boys' coffins right up Selby Street to show the neighbours what they had done to their family. A few days before the funeral, the inquest into the three boys' deaths was opened, and the pathologist confirmed that Charles and Peter had died from burns and smoke inhalation, and that Paul had died from his burns. The coroner made yet another appeal for information about the murders, and had it printed that evening in the Hall Daily Mail paper, but no one came forward. The day of the funeral, the cars slowed as they passed the house where the boys had been attacked. The Hasty family was joined by only sixty mourners at the boys' funeral. Edith had an outburst as the last coffin made its way into the church. She turned to those gathered and yelled, quote, It was one of you bastards. One of you in this street is the murderer. End quote. She was crying and waving her still bandaged hands about as she yelled, but she was quickly calmed by Tommy and led into the church. She was unable to contain herself throughout the ceremony, though, and cried and screamed in frustrated anger as the preacher conducted the service. The police investigating the fire looked on at the crowd, thinking that the arsonist may turn up to watch the result of his actions. By the end of January, the handwriting samples had all been gone through, and there was one in particular that seemed a good match to the note on the back of the cornflake wrapper. The writing belonged to a woman in her sixties living on the street, who had been tormented by the hasty boys, and had, in a fit of frustration, sent the card. She told the police she was sick of having stones thrown at her, and being harassed, and had sent the card the year before. When the fire happened, she had been worried, but she thought that there was no way that the card had survived. When she heard that the police had it, she was nearly relieved when they called her into the station for questioning. It was perfectly obvious to the chief investigator that this woman was not their arsonist. This was not the only lead that the police had gotten, however. The day after the fire, there had been an anonymous call placed to the station. A man's voice told them that he had been in the area of Selby Street the night before and had seen two men running away from number 12 and jumping into a car, which sped off. The caller had not seen the fire, but had seen the men and their car that they had driven off in. It was something like a rover, he said. The police were able to trace the call, though, and they managed to get to the phone box that the call was made from before the caller had left. He told them that he didn't know why he wanted to remain anonymous, and eventually he did agree to come to the station to make a statement. He was able to give a description of the two men. One was about 5'10", broad, with short dark hair. 
He said he was clean-shaven, wearing grayish trousers and a brown jacket, possibly corduroy. The second guy was about the same height, but was slim. He also had dark hair, but his was shoulder-length and wavy. He was wearing a dark jacket and jeans. The rover, he said, was possibly mustard-colored, an older model, but in good nick. He didn't see the driver, and so couldn't give a description of him. But the police were a bit suspicious about how good the information was that this source seemed to have. He had been driving too, and in the dark, and was yet able to give a good description of not only the car, but the two men he had seen running. It seemed a bit too good to be true, and so they would have to wait to corroborate it. Neither the couple known to have walked through the street that night, nor the police car out on its rounds, had seen anything remotely like what the anonymous tipster had described. The fact that he did not want to come forward and identify himself made them even more suspicious. They were satisfied that he had nothing at all to do with the fire, but police certainly weren't buying the story he gave them. Still, they checked out owners of rovers that matched the description. There was a thought that maybe the hasty house had been mistaken for someone else's, and that it had been set alight instead of the real target. But leads were thin on the ground. A few weeks after making his statement, after rovers had been looked into and doors had been knocked on, the informant told police that he thought he might be wrong about the night he was on Selby Street. The whole thing was a waste of time and resources. Police continued to hold press conferences and appeal for information to try and keep the case in the public eye and to generate leads, but there was very little gathered from this. Not even the normal sources of information were coming forward. In fact, their criminal informants were getting frustrated with the continued police presence in their areas, saying that they weren't able to go about their normal business. One informant said that not even so much as a car radio was able to be lifted while the police were snooping around, and that if any of the regular grasses and criminals had any idea who had done the fire, they'd give them up just to get the cops out of their area. Grasping at straws, the police thought that perhaps Charlie might have been involved in the local gay scene in Hull. There was a public bathroom near the house that was a known cruising spot, and there had been murders of members of the community there. But given the era, the police wanted to keep this line of questioning quiet. They didn't want to upset the hasties at their guesses. They did ask Tommy, however, if he'd ever spoken to Charlie about sex, but he'd said no. He said his son was too young to be thinking about that kind of thing, and the question was dropped. In May, a young man formerly known as Peter Dinsdale, who had changed his name to Bruce George Peter Lee, was brought into the station to talk to the police. He admitted that he had been involved in a number of, so-called at the time, indecent acts with men, and that one of those people was Charlie Hasty. He said the boy had even taken money from him. Lee gave a statement outlining his involvement with Charlie and was let go. In June, following on from this quote-unquote homosexual line of inquiry, the police planned to call in a number of men, including Bruce George Peter Lee, for further questioning. 
They were brought in on the 6th of June, 1980. Bruce Lee appeared to have drink taken. He was a thin, lanky young man with dark hair, not quite long and not quite short, with a thin face. He was 19 years old. The police couldn't interview him in the state that he was in, so they plied him with tea and a plate of fish and chips until the smell of drink had worn off. Lead investigator Detective Chief Inspector Ron Sager sat down with him and cautioned him and began taking notes of the conversation by hand. In a bold opening salvo, he put it to Bruce that he had started the fire in the Hasty's house and that the indecent behaviour between himself and Charles had something to do with it. Bruce replied, quote, I didn't mean to kill them, end quote. Lee said that every time he and Charlie had messed around, Charlie looked for money off him after, and it had made him angry. So he decided to set the house on fire, maybe a week before he had actually done it. He told Sager that he had gone to Selby Street that night when his mother and father were in bed. They had been out in the pub that night, and he could hear their snores as he left the house. He got to the street and stood in the dark below the flyover bridge and watched the couple walk down the street and the police car drive up it. He worked up the nerve to head to number 12. He thought, quote, this will put the Frighteners on Charlie now. He'd have to give him 50p or a pound, he said, every time they messed around, or Charlie said he'd go to the police about the quote-unquote indecency. He described finding the corner house, which he'd been at the summer before, and how he unscrewed the top of the container holding the paraffin before pouring the lot of it through the letterbox. He said after he poured the liquid in, he had set the container down behind him, right where the police had seen the puddle of liquid the morning of the fire. He said he'd struck one match and that it went out, and he threw it down in front of the door, and then another before getting a newspaper and shoving that into the letterbox and lighting it on fire. He saw the net curtain that was on the inside of the door catch light. He told the police that he knew the family was upstairs asleep. He then said he had hid the container under his jacket, he had worn all dark clothes to make sure he wasn't spotted, and then he left the area as quick as he could. He said he took the container because he knew he'd leave fingerprints behind otherwise. He went to some wasteland nearby and burned the container. It was plastic and covered in oil, so it went up easily. He heard the fire engines make their way to Selby Street. He told Sager that he had meant to kill Charlie, but not the others. He was okay when he heard about Charlie's death, but was really upset when the other two boys died. He said he had to drink to help him get to sleep after that. Lee was arrested and cautioned again, and dictated a statement to Detective Superintendent Sager, and then was detained in the local cells. A solicitor was called for him, and the police travelled out to the hasty home to inform Tommy and Edith that they had their arsonist. A few days after the news was delivered, Tommy was involved in a road accident. He had been driving a motorbike, with his daughter Nicola riding behind him. He had slipped on a corner and rammed into a lamppost. He was dead on arrival at Hull Hospital. Nicholas sustained only minor injuries. The news of Bruce Lee's arrest sparked gossip in the community. 
the police began getting calls with information about him. They knew he had been born in 1960 to a broken home and that he had spent much of his childhood in care. He also suffered from a disability that affected the movement in his right leg and arm. It caused him to limp slightly, but otherwise he was physically healthy. Then the police started to take calls about other fires that had happened in Hull. One woman, Roz Fenton, came to the station to tell police that she had been watching the Hasty case since it happened. She had a special interest in it, as her house had been set alight on the 21st of January, 1979. She had been alone with her infant daughter that night when she awoke and sat bolt upright. She had heard her neighbours screaming outside. At first she thought that they were just fighting, but she realised that they were screaming fire, and then the panic set in. She and her daughter lived in a six-story building full of homes. When she opened the hall door, she saw a ball of flame shoot up towards her. Roz ran to get her daughter out of bed. She could feel the burning on her skin, and though she attempted to get them out, they both ended up on the floor of the bedroom. A neighbour, in an act of complete heroism, covered his face with a damp cloth and saved the two of them. Roz was badly burned, and initially the hospital staff thought that she wouldn't make it to the morning. She had been seven months pregnant at the time, and she lost the baby. Her daughter Samantha was also badly burned, but was not as badly off as her mum. She was released after six weeks' care in Pinderfield's burn unit, and her mum was released a few weeks later. At the time, the police were unable to determine a definite cause of the fire, and assumed that it must have been started by a cigarette butt. Given that there were no deaths, it was put down as an unfortunate accident, and left at that. But Roz had suspected that Bruce Lee was responsible. After her discharge, she was in no fit shape to argue with the police force, so she decided to just watch and wait, and then the hasty fire happened. She had a strong dislike of Lee, and he had been in the area the night of the fire in her home. So police went to visit Lee in Lee's prison. Sager spoke to him and asked him directly if he had started any other fires. The policeman had a good relationship with the young man, and Lee seemed to trust him. Sager put it to him that, from the scene at the Hasties, the police thought it was unlikely that this was the first time that the perpetrator had started a fire. Sager asked him if he held grudges against people, and Bruce admitted that yes, he did, that he felt that no one gave a shit about him, and he got angry at people. Bruce said he had set Roz's house alight because he didn't like her, because one of his friends had something against her. That night, someone had left the door to the block of flats open, and he had thrown some lip papers into the hallway and just walked off. Sager put it to Bruce that, given the fact that Lee had just carried on with things after the hasty fire and the death of three boys, that the Troutbeck fire wasn't his first, and that the hasty fire wasn't the first time he had killed someone. Bruce stared into Sager's face for a long time, and then put his head down on the table between them thinking for some time. When he looked up again, he told Sager that he had killed a little baby once. He told Sager that, about two years previously, when he had been living in West Dock Avenue, he'd set fire to a house near a school. 
He'd just gone in an open window and sprinkled fuel on the carpet and couch and set it alight. He said a little baby girl had died. And then he said that there were four other fires that he'd killed people in. But before he would talk about it with Sager, he wanted some time to think. He reassured Sager that he'd tell him everything, but he needed some time, and so Sager thanked him for his truthfulness and left. The next afternoon, Sager returned to get the rest of the story from Bruce, and Bruce was entirely willing to give it, despite his solicitor's advice to say nothing more. Lee said that the fires were playing on his conscience, and he wanted to tell the truth. He said that he had set fire to a men's home in Hessel in 1977. A number of elderly men had been killed in that fire, just west of Hull. Bruce said that he had broken a window and sprinkled paraffin on the carpets and stairway, and then set it alight with paper. The building was an all-male old folks' home, and eleven had died in that fire. On the 30th of June, Ron Sager and Bruce Lee got into a police car and drove around Hull while Lee pointed out the places that he had set alight. First, they went to Wensley Lodge, the men's home on the Hassel Road, and then they went to number 70 Askew Avenue. There, Lee told the story of the first fire he had set that killed someone, a little boy. Lee had known him from a bus route taken by school kids attending the Frederick Holmes School. He was six. They passed Rosamond Street where Lee pointed out two places he had set alight, though the terrace of houses was in the process of being demolished. In one fire, he'd killed two kids. In further interviews and trips about the town with police, Lee would admit to a total of 11 fires that resulted in fatalities, all over Hull. Each one had been recorded as an accident, barring the last at the Hasty's house. Each statement he made was against his solicitor's advice. Throughout his many confessions, Bruce Lee told the police how easy it was for him to light the fires, how good at it he was, and how he felt a tingle in his fingertips like he was itching to start a fire before each attack. The families of the victims were informed that the fires were being reinvestigated, but that was all they were told. They were not informed that arson and murder were suspected, nor that the fires were now thought to be linked. The police had to go about trying to corroborate the stories that Lee was telling them. His stories of setting fires for years and years and killing multiple people, all the while going undetected, seemed unbelievable. But he had details that gave the stories credibility. It would all have to be checked into. The records of house fires in Hull, during the period in the 70s Lee said that he was active setting fires, was up to nearly 50. It was a surprising number to the investigating police, who didn't realise that the number would be so high. Lee's confessed arsons accounted for only a fraction of those fires, though it was a hefty one. Eleven fires with 26 deaths. Each inquest recorded the cause of death as asphyxiation due to inhalation of smoke and the manner of death as misadventure. At the time of the first fire in 1973, which killed a six-year-old boy, Lee was a mere 12 years old. On the 24th of June 1973, little Richard Ellerington was at his home in 70 Askew Avenue. 
he had a disability that affected the right side of his body, much like Bruce Lee. He was the second youngest of six kids, and he attended a special school for handicapped children, as they were called then. It was a warm night, and they had left the kitchen window open the night before before going up to bed. The rest of the family managed to jump to safety out of a window, but Richard was caught up behind the blaze and never made it to the safety of that bedroom. His mother tried to get him, but the fire was too big and out of control by that time. There was no forensic examination of the scene, but there was a fault found in the gas cooker that had been used the day before to cook dinner, and this was noted as the presumed cause by the coroner. The inquest concluded that Richard had died of smoke inhalation. In relation to this fire, Lee said that he had climbed in the window, sprinkled paraffin in the kitchen, which corroborated the sparse evidence that the police had. He said that he then fled the scene. He knew the victim from the school bus route that they shared. On the morning of the 12th of October, 1973, a man driving to work up Glasgow Street spotted smoke coming from number 33. It was the home of Arthur Smith, a 72-year-old recluse who lived on his own there. He suffered badly from ill health. He had gangrene in both legs and was often confused and was, unsurprisingly, unsteady on his feet. There was a roaring fire in his living room, and when the firefighters got there and put it out, Arthur was dead on his living room floor. At the inquest, it was noted that paraffin was likely to have played a role in the fire, but there was no definite explanation of how the fire had started. Arthur lit his home by candlelight as his electricity had been cut off. Maybe a candle had fallen and set paraffin from his heaters alight. Lacking any further information, the death was ruled once again misadventure. Lee had been 13 when this fire took place, and living only half a mile away at the time. He told police about broken windows to the front of Arthur's house and the absolute mess and dirt that he found when he went in. He had pointed out the house on one of his trips around Hull with the police, despite the fact that the street was much changed. Many of the houses had been demolished by that time. On Friday the 19th of October 1973, 32-year-old David Brewer was found by a neighbour in the apartment that he shared with his mother, screaming as his clothes had been set alight. He was taken to hospital but died eight days later from sepsis caused by second and third degree burns on 50% of his body. Apart from some scorching on the chair he had been dozing in and the flooring, there was no fire damage to the house. At his inquest, it was thought that perhaps clothing drying near the fireplace had caught fire and that this had caused his injuries. There were no further inquiries made. During their investigation, police found that Bruce Lee knew the son of the neighbour who had found David. Sean Lister kept pigeons, and Lee was interested in them too. Two days before the fire, Lee had threatened to kill the pigeons. David Brewer had been present for the argument and had even went so far as to smack Lee across the ear. Two weeks after the fire, the pigeons were all found dead too. On Monday the 23rd of December 1974, neighbours of Mrs. Elizabeth Rokar smelled smoke coming from her home. She lived alone in a tidy row of small terraces on Rosamond Street. 
though because she was 82 and used a walker to get about, her neighbours kept a close eye on her. By the time the fire was out, the whole bottom floor of the house was gutted, particularly the back room where Mrs. Rokar slept. It appeared that the fire had started at the top of the bed, near the poor woman's head, and it spread from there. Fire investigators thought that its cause had either been a cigarette or from the fireplace next to the bed, but there was no way for them to be sure. Forensic scientists were not called to the scene. Mrs. Roker's inquest once again found that she had died of asphyxiation and that the death had been an accident. Lee had described Mrs. Rokar's house to Ron Sager and how he had tried to get the front door open by grabbing the key hanging just inside the door. But he couldn't get that door open, and so he had gone around the back to get access and set the blaze. The next fire, chronologically, that Lee confessed to took place on the 3rd of June, 1976. Number 9, Gorthrope, was home to a large family at that stage. James and Veronica Edwards lived there with their four children, ages 7 down to 13 months. Veronica's grandmother and her sister lived there at the time. On that day, the great-grandmother Dorothy was in charge of the kids. Despite her advancing age, she was still well able for them all. Both parents were out, along with the aunt, and James Jr., the second youngest child. Dorothy went upstairs to put the baby, Andrew, to bed, and when she came back downstairs, she noticed a smell of smoke. It was coming from the cupboard under the stairs. When she opened it, David, aged five, ran out with his hair alight. She grabbed David and got him and his sister, Jennifer, seven, out of the house and to safety at the neighbours. It was then she thought of baby Andrew upstairs in his crib. By the time she got back from the neighbours, the ground floor of the house was engulfed in flame, and she couldn't get in, nor could the neighbours, who also tried. The firemen found the poor toddler dead in his crib from smoke inhalation when they got the fire out. There was an assumption that little David had been playing with matches under the stairs, and that that was what had started the fire, despite the mystery of where he would have gotten them from, as the Edwards didn't keep matches in their house. The boy had even told the police that that was what had happened, albeit with some prompting from the officer who had interviewed him. And so, the matter was settled. That is, until Bruce Lee confessed to it. The next fire was at 43 West Dock Avenue, near to where Lee had once lived. The family in that house comprised of Karen Fraser and her three children, and sometimes the father of her youngest child, Peter Thacker. He had lived with them full-time for a while, but had moved out at that stage. However, he often came back to see his daughter, and because he kept pigeons nearby. Local kids, including Lee, often went to the pigeon loft, and on a few occasions, Lee had been there without permission and had twice entered Karen's house uninvited. Around Christmas 1976, Lee had been cheeky to the couple, and Peter had given him a box for it. On the 2nd of January 1977, Kim, who's three at the time, was asleep in her crib upstairs. Karen and her other two daughters, Anne-Marie, four, and Katrina, six months, were in the living room. Katrina was in a carry cot, asleep. At about half seven that evening, Karen brought Anne-Marie to the toilet. 
When they came back out, they noticed smoke. Karen grabbed Anne-Marie and ran to the next-door neighbours to raise the alarm. In the seconds that that took, the fire took hold on the ground floor and nobody could get back into the house for the flames and smoke. When the fire brigade arrived, they got the fire under control and rescued Kim, who suffered from smoke inhalation, but would later make a full recovery. However, baby Katrina died in the fire. The cause of the fire was thought to be a spark from the fireplace. The coroner, pleasingly named Dr. Science, ruled her death misadventure. Lee said that he had snuck into the house at the precise moment that Karen was in the loo, spraying paraffin all over the room. He said that then he lit a match and ran. He insisted to Sager that he didn't know that there was a baby in the room. On Wednesday the 5th of January 1977, the next fire happened. It was the one at the men's home in Wensley Lodge. This was a large building. It had originally been four separate homes, but they were converted in the 1950s. It was two or three floors over basement, depending what part of the building you were in, and it housed 50 elderly men in various states of health. That night, the facility was understaffed due to sickness and time off. Just after half nine, in room 11, a fire was discovered. The staff present tried to extinguish it, but failed, and the emergency services were called as the fire spread rapidly through the building. Eleven deaths resulted despite the huge turnout of fire and ambulance services. The inquest was told that earlier in the day there had been some plumbing work carried out in the basement below room 11 where the fire was first noticed. The work had involved the use of a blowtorch, and it was thought that the heat from this may have caused the floorboards to smolder and set the fire, which travelled through the floors and plumbing, spreading all over the building. The plumber was insistent that his work was not responsible, but the inquest found that it had been the cause, although, of course, innocent and accidental. We've already heard how Lee said that he broke into a room and scattered paraffin before setting the place alight. On Tuesday, the 26th of April, 1977, another house in Rosamond Street went up in flames. This one was owned by Gwendolyn Gold and her husband. They and two of their nine children lived there, Deborah and Lana, and that night they were also joined by a family friend, Peter Jordan, and his two children, Mark and Graham. That night, the kids all slept in one room. The Golds retired to their bedroom at about 11, and Peter Jordan slept on the couch. He woke at about 3am to noises and a flashing light reflecting off the wall next to him, and then a burst of heat. He jumped up and ran up the stairs as fire took hold and engulfed the living room furniture. He woke the Golds, who went to shake the kids awake, and in his panic he ran down the stairs again. He couldn't get the front door open, and so smashed through a window and threw himself through it. By the time the Golds roused the children, the stairs were impassable, and flames were making their way up. They went to the front room, and Gwen climbed out on the bay window and helped Graham and Lana out. They got to safety on the ground, but then Gwen passed out from the smoke and fell to the ground too. Meanwhile, Mr. Gold couldn't find the other two kids in the smoke in the front room, and eventually he too climbed out the window. 
The fire brigade arrived quickly, and when the fire was out, they found little David, who had turned around in the room to try and help Deborah, who was disabled, make her way to the window in the smoke-filled room. They had both succumbed to the smoke and died. At the inquest, Dr. Science concluded that the cause of the fire was a cigarette, but Peter Jordan was sure that this wasn't the case. He thought that it might have been electrical, but there was no evidence of this. Either way, the deaths were ruled misadventure. During his interviews, Lee had taken responsibility for this fire and told the police that he had broken a window in the front of the house, which was confirmed in photos of the scene, and he had been able to describe the house, that it had a fish tank, and that there was polystyrene tiles on the ceiling. On the 6th of January 1978, there was a fire in number two Brentwood Villas. The house was occupied by Christine and Anthony Dixon and their four young children, aged four years to two months. That morning, Anthony was off sick from work and stayed in bed while Christine went about looking after the kids and so on. Just after 11am, she went to her next-door neighbour, Kathleen, and they chatted for a few minutes. She'd left the four kids in the living room with the door closed to keep them in. When Christine headed back towards her house, she noticed that the lace curtain was missing and gave out that the kids had pulled it down somehow. But then she noticed that the window was actually black. She ran to the door and black smoke poured out when she opened it. She ran in and grabbed the baby and screamed to her husband to get up. She passed little Brian to her neighbour and went back in to try and get the rest of the kids. Kathleen ran to her house to get her own two kids out as the flames whipped up and threatened her own house. When she got back to number two, she saw Christine fall into the flames, giving one last scream. Meanwhile, Anthony jumped out of bed and ran down the stairs. He couldn't get into the living room or out the front door due to the ferocity of the fire, so he fled out the back. Another neighbour, Leonard Milner, repeatedly entered the house in an effort to get Christine and her other three kids out, but he wasn't able to do so. At the inquest, it was found that all three kids and Christine had died from burns and smoke inhalation, but it was not clear how the fire had started. There was a tentative assumption that the kids had somehow gotten a hold of lighter fluid, but there was no real evidence for this. Again, the coroner found that the deaths were due to misadventure. Lee had told the police that he had squirted paraffin through the letterbox of the house that he had in a fairy liquid bottle, and that he had set the place alight. No one saw him at the scene. He said he left quickly. Each of the fires had been ruled misadventure in the absence of any real explanation as to how they had started. In nearly each case, there was a general assumption of what had happened, but no concrete evidence giving the cause of the fires. Lee had confessed to each one, and in each case it was plausible that the fire could have been arson. The police would have to very carefully investigate each one to attempt to corroborate the confessions. Despite the possibility of arson, it seemed unbelievable that Lee had managed to set these fires and get away from each scene without being noticed. Furthermore, Bruce Lee was ignoring the advice he was getting from his solicitor. First, to not speak to the police anymore and to give no further written statements, and secondly, that when charges were preferred, that he should plead not guilty. 
he repeatedly told the investigators that he wanted to and intended to plead guilty to arson and murder. The prison doctor told the police that although Bruce Lee was undereducated, the young man knew what he was doing, and he understood what was going on. He knew right from wrong, and they thought that he was fit to plead whatever way he chose. Bruce Lee was charged with 23 counts of murder, 9 counts of arson, and 1 count of grievous bodily harm on the 15th of October, 1980. The next day he was formally remanded in custody for the charges and granted legal aid. He was not asked to enter a plea at that time. The next month, Ron Sager went to visit Lee at Leeds Prison. While they were chatting, Lee told him that, although he acknowledged he had done the fire at the Hasties and the one at Wensley Lodge, he had a good legal team, and they had told him that if he said the confessions were false, and he quote-unquote acted a bit daft, he might be sent to a mental home, which he thought would be better than living out his days in a prison where his life was in danger due to the nature of his crimes. He told Sager that he was going to plead not guilty. The police and the DPP began preparing their case, much of which would rest on the reams and reams of handwritten notes taken by Ron Sager himself. On the 19th of January 1981, the first pre-trial hearing took place in Leeds Crown Court. Lee's lawyers sought an audience with the judge. They said it was because their client's current instructions were not sitting well with them. Lee wanted to plead guilty against their advice. But the medical professionals attending to Lee were sure that he was fit and able to stand trial and to plead whatever way he chose. The case was entered to be heard again the next day to give the legal team time to speak with their client once more. The next day, defense lawyers approached those working for the Crown and asked if they would be prepared to accept guilty pleas to manslaughter. The prosecution team said that they would, and so Lee pled not guilty to each count of murder, but guilty to manslaughter and arson. He stood calmly and spoke clearly in the court when addressed, and each plea was accepted by the judge. There would be no hearing of the facts in the case against Lee. At this hearing, there were general comments about his actions in setting the fires and a presentation about his upbringing by the defense. Mr. Justice Tudor Evans concluded that Lee was suffering from a psychological disorder, and so he was detained under the Mental Health Act and sent to Park Lane Special Hospital, just like he said to Sager he wanted. Without details and with the news of the Yorkshire Ripper stealing headlines, very little was heard by the public of Bruce Lee and his arsons and killings that day. That was until about a week later, on the 26th of January. A headline appeared that day asking how a quote-unquote simpleton had fooled the police. How had Lee, who was according to this article both mentally and physically disabled, able to convince the police that he was clever enough to get away with the crimes and agile enough to commit them? in the first place. There was criticism that there was no public hearing and testing of the facts in the case. Sager, concerned that the confessions were the state's entire case on which to base these guilty pleas, 
sent the files to two forensic scientists to test whether what Lee had confessed to was within the realms of possibility. They both confirmed to him that it was. MPs from North Humberside requested a meeting with the then Home Secretary to discuss Lee's case. At the meeting, one MP, Ken McNamara, asked the Home Secretary to open a public inquiry into what had happened at Wensley Lodge and the statements that Lee had made in order for the fire and police services to learn from what had happened there and to enhance detection of arsons. But six months later, McNamara was still unsatisfied by the result of this investigation and said that there were still unanswered questions. In the meantime, headlines appeared in local papers expressing doubt at Lee's responsibility for the fires. Papers even tried to link Lee and his fires with drug activity in Hull, saying that he had been paid to set fires by dealers or dirty cops. By the 14th of March 1982, the Sunday Times published a two-page story saying that the investigation had been flawed and that, if the case had gone to a jury, Lee would not have been convicted on the evidence. There was specific criticism of the fact that Lee was interviewed on his own with only Sager and another colleague in the room. A week later, the Times carried the headline, quote, I demand a retrial, says Mass Killer. On the 23rd of May, it was reported that Lee was seeking an appeal, and he had engaged a new solicitor. A chief constable from South Wales, Mr Vivian Brooke, was sent to Hull by the Court of Appeal to review both the police files in the Lee case and the dossier that the Sunday Times had compiled during their reporting. Bruce Lee's appeal was heard on the 22nd of November, 1983, before a panel of three judges. Lee's legal team argued that the guilty pleas were not warranted by the degree of evidence, that without the confessions, there was not enough evidence to convict, and that the trial judge had erred in accepting the guilty pleas without strict proof. They wanted to appeal against the convictions, present fresh evidence, and ultimately seek a full retrial. They also said that Lee's relationship with Sager was unusual, and that Lee had wanted to please him and had confessed the crimes because of that. Furthermore, his legal team at the time of the initial hearings were seriously concerned about the decisions that he had been making, and they felt at the time that they were not in his best interests. They said that Lee suffered from a, quote, severely disordered and psychopathic personality, end quote. The Crown stated that if Lee had been unduly pressured by the police, or if the evidence was insufficient, Lee could have sought an adjournment, but he and his legal team didn't. Lee had confessed, and had intentions from the start, admittedly wavering at points, to plead guilty. The court noted that the situation was highly unusual, and a nearly unique case, and that they could appreciate the public concern regarding the case. On the second day of the hearing, the court refused leave to appeal against the charges relating to the deaths of the Hasties and the fire in their home. This appeal had been abandoned by the legal team after it was ruled by the judges that evidence relating to the confessions of the other fires could not be used to show that the Selby Street confession was unreliable. The Court of Appeals would hear evidence in relation to all other fires and the manslaughter charges stemming from them in order to adjudicate as if there had been a full hearing when the matter was first before the court. Bruce Lee took the stand and said that the police had asked leading questions of him. 
and due to the frequency of his interviews with them, he would just agree to whatever they said, but that it was all lies. He said he was not being truthful when he agreed that he had done the things in the way Sager had described. He said he hadn't done them at all. Lee denied stating that he liked fires, and he said he couldn't remember making statements about fires to Sager during his interviews with him. He also said that he had no idea what he was signing when he put his name to the voluntary statements that Sager had written out for him. Lee said he had just been told to sign the papers, and that he had no idea what Sager had been writing down, or what the pages and pages of purported confessions actually said. On top of all that, Lee insisted that he had not known, nor understood what he was pleading to when he had appeared before the court initially. Mr. Ognall for the Crown put it to Lee that, on the morning of the hearing, he himself had advised Lee to plead not guilty and Lee had gone against this and his own legal team's advice. Lee accepted that this was the case, and he admitted to writing out at the bottom of a statement that he had made the admissions and that they were true, and that he knew he could change anything. His own team then asked him about what he knew at the time of the pleading, and Lee told the court that he knew at that time that if he pled guilty, that he was going to be sent to the hospital, rather than back to Lee's prison and that he felt at the time he basically had a choice to make between the two, that this had been the main influence in him pleading guilty to manslaughter and arson. The next day, Ron Sager took the stand. He said that he had not made any major inquiries into Bruce Lee before he interviewed him, though he knew that he was in and out of care homes through his childhood, and he knew something of his mother, who had been a known sex worker. Sager said that although Lee appeared to him an unfortunate guy with a poor upbringing, he didn't think that he was quote-unquote mentally subpar. To Sager, it was clear that Lee knew what he was saying and understood what was going on when Sager took his statements. He insisted to the defense team that he had been in touch with Lee's legal representatives throughout the period that he interviewed their client, and they had been informed of each statement before it was taken. There was nothing at all unusual about the interview, Sager said. He had done nothing wrong. Evidence was also heard from Roz Fenton about the fire at her house. Both she and a neighbour testified to seeing Bruce Lee around her house the day of the fire. A forensic scientist, Roy Cook, also gave evidence that Lee's confession regarding the house fire at Mrs. Fenton's matched up with how the fire had started, given the physical evidence reports he had access to. An officer with Hull Fire Brigade told the court that he had been unhappy with the investigation into that fire at the time, as he thought that it was possible it had been started intentionally, with an accelerant. Five days into the hearing, the Court of Appeal refused leave to appeal the convictions in relation to seven of the fires. So, there were three fires remaining. Lee's legal team asked for time to prepare their case in relation to the fire at Wensley Lodge. Lee took the stand and denied that he had set the Hessel fire. An expert for the defense said he was convinced that the fire had begun due to the work in the boiler room carried out by Stephen Hay. Hay himself told the court that he was sure that the fire was not caused by his use of the blow lamp. Another expert for the prosecution this time said how he had initially thought that the fire was caused by the work in the boiler room, 
but he had since carried out experiments and changed his mind. He thought that the burn pattern was consistent with paraffin being lit and burning down through the floorboards. Given the contradictory nature of the evidence presented and the lack of investigation into problems with both the explanation of accidental fire caused by blowtorch and the intentional arson allegedly carried out by Lee, the three-judge panel decided that there was no possibility of certainty as to the cause of the fire and that therefore the conviction in relation to Wensley Lodge was to be quashed. After this, the court adjourned briefly, and when it resumed, counsel for Lee informed the judges that he withdrew the final two applications for leave to appeal. The judges agreed and retired to consider their verdict, which predictably affirmed the quashing of charges in relation to the Wensley Lodge fire and upheld the convictions relating to the rest of the charges, given that the request to appeal had been withdrawn in nearly all cases. Bruce Lee returned back to the hospital, where he had been held since his guilty pleas. Today, he remains in custody in Rampton Secure Hospital. He has lived nearly all his adult life in a psychiatric facility. In 2005, he was permitted to marry a fellow patient, who he met at an arranged dance at the facility that they both lived in. But though the marriage was allowed, the relationship is constrained. They are not allowed time alone together. Most recent reports on Bruce Lee are from 2016 and note that he is allowed supervised day release from his unit. Roz Fenton was contacted by the papers for a response at the time and is quoted as saying, He's a danger to society. The thought of him walking about near kids sickens me. Despite being convicted of 10 arsons and 15 deaths, Lee is not a well-known figure to the British public. It may be because he pled down to manslaughter or the fact that there was no real trial of the evidence in his case, or it may be due to the fact that Peter Sutcliffe was apprehended the month that his case came before the courts. It's unlikely that Bruce Lee will ever be released. His tragic childhood and personality led to his fascination and obsession with fire, which functioned as an outlet for his anger. Though there is no real motives apparent for his fire starting, and he is not connected to all his victims, it does seem that they share traits. The majority of them were incapacitated in some way, either through advanced age, disability, or their extreme youth. And they were all people and families with homes things that Lee could relate to, and something that he lacked. Thanks for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. If you like what you heard, head on over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You can get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod, or why not shoot me an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. I love your feedback, and I love hearing from you, so do get in touch. This podcast is made with the help of our supporters on Patreon. This week, there's a big thank you to our newest patrons, Louise Caps, who joins us at the highest tier. You can look forward to an episode chosen and produced by Louise in the near future, Amy Who Digital, and Deborah Henning. So if you'd like to help support the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. There's stickers and magnets and badges up for grabs, as well as bonus content and early releases. I am so grateful for every dollar donated. 
Next time we're back in Ireland, and back in time yet again, we head to Limerick to find out about a random attack of a nurse on her way home, and the landmark court case that followed. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com, or in the show notes, so do check them out. Our theme song is Queen Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. When the fire brigade... When the fire brigade... When the fire brigade arrived, the prosecution said... The prosec... The prosecution seat... The prosecute. The prosecute.